Greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning is so unique. Today is unique and historical. Why? For the first time in our history, we will be worshiping together via live stream into homes, small groups. This reminds me of the first century believers when they would gather in houses in small groups. What a joy that we can gather together and worship the Lord. What is so amazing is God's timing in our series. What do I mean? Our series is about joy. And yet, this week, the World Health Organization recently announced a worldwide pandemic of the coronavirus. And because of the uncertainties, because of the reality, it is very contagious, a lot of people are afraid. A lot of people are concerned. And what's our topic? How to have joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. But last week, I just want to have a quick review. We discuss what kills our joy. We talk about circumstances. We talk about people. And we talk about death. Isn't God amazing in preparing our people to be a good witness to the rest of the world? I want to share with us how do we respond to this coronavirus pandemic? From a practical point of view, I like to suggest the following. Cooperate, support the government. Avoid crowded areas. Avoid unnecessary travel. Wash your hands. Don't touch your eyes or your face or your nose unnecessarily. But I want us to look at it, not just from what is discussed mostly by doctors. I want us to look at it from another perspective. The perspective of the reality that for the last five months, the U.S. Center for Disease and Control has more or less estimated, this is the estimate, more than 35 million to 50 million have acquired flu. And out of these people, 25,000 25, to 50,000 have died. There are more people who will die of cancer, who will die of heart attack than this coronavirus. Therefore, I want us to look at it from this perspective. Be concerned, but don't panic. Use caution. For example, build your immune system. Eat properly. Sleep properly. Drink lots of water. 
lots of vitamin C. But more than that, spiritually, I have discovered that there are more people who get sick if they worry and if they are afraid. In other words, being joyful builds your immune system. So turn to your family members and say, let's be joyful in the Lord. Let's anchor our peace and joy in Jesus. So this morning, I want to discuss with you the most dangerous virus of all. It is not coronavirus. I call this the most dangerous killjoy, the virus of pride. Why is this virus so important? Why is this so serious? You may not realize this. C.S. Lewis said this. Pride, the one vice of which no man in the world is free, which hardly any people ever imagine they are guilty themselves. This is the deadly virus of pride. It will eventually kill your joy. It will eventually destroy your spiritual life. What are its symptoms? It is so dangerous because pride has many manifestations. For example, anger. Why are you angry? Because you don't have it your way. What's the root problem? Pride. What about unresolved conflict? You know, conflict should easily be resolved. What's the root problem? Pride. You will not resolve conflict if you don't want to change, if you don't want to listen, because you think you're always correct. What about deceit? Why do people lie? You want to impress people, or you are caught in a bind. You want to protect your reputation. What about slander? You know why people slander? Because you want to make yourself better than the other people. So pride is very dangerous. Envy. Why are you jealous? Why are you envy? Because in your mind, you feel you deserve the blessings or the promotions or the accolades that the other person is having because you think it belongs to you. Pride. Hypocrisy. Pretending to be who you are not. Why are we doing that? To impress people. Bitterness. Why are people bitter? Because their pride has been hurt. And when you are hurt, because of pride, you don't want to forgive. So pride is a very deadly virus. And last Sunday, I told you we will discuss the most dangerous killjoy of them all. It is pride. Because most of us will not admit we have it. And God has a lot to say about pride. For example, the Bible says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Notice the word abomination. God is really against proud people. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. This message is so important because pride will kill your joy. God is opposed to the proud. The Bible is so clear. In James 4, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud. Notice, God is opposed. He's against proud people, but gives grace to the humble. The opposite of pride is humility. Now, you ask me, what is pride? Pride is wanting 
to get credit when credit belongs to God. Pride is all about yourself. Pride is exalting yourself. Pride is not recognizing everything we have, all our blessings come from God. Pride is dangerous because proud people want to get the glory. They want to get the praises of men. What's humility? Humility is not thinking about how bad you are, how insignificant you are. Humility is the proper thinking of who you are based on God's truth. It is not over-exalting yourself. It is not looking down on yourself. But it is realizing everything we have comes from God. I like the quotation of John Stott. This is what he said. At every step of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. The Bible guarantees proud people will be destroyed. Pride goes before destruction and the Holy Spirit before stumbling. Is this message important? Absolutely. What is the antidote? What is the solution? I have good news for you. There's only one antidote. Live a Christ-centered life. The antidote is Jesus. It is impossible for human beings to cure this kind of virus, the virus of pride in your life. You need special healing from the Lord. Be humble like Christ. How can you be humble like Christ? It's impossible. That's why you need to study the Bible. I want to share with you this morning how to deal with this dangerous virus, this killjoy pride. Today, we are in Philippians chapter 2. By the grace of God, he made sure we are studying the book of Philippians, the book of joy. Paul wrote this when he was in prison. But do you know why he wrote this book? Look at Philippians chapter 2. Let's read this together. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Behind chapter 2, there was a problem. The problem has to do with division. There was conflict. And in order to solve the conflict, he wrote, Philippians chapter 2, so that you and I will learn what is the root problem of conflict. What do I mean? For example, in Philippians chapter 4, he tells us the problem. I urge Judea, I urge Sintaiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, who is Judea? Who is Sintaiki? These are not ordinary women. The Bible says, indeed, true comrade, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names 
are written in the book of life. These are believers. And they are serving the Lord. Except they have a problem. Paul is urging them. Notice the repetition. I urge Judea. I urge Syntyche. Beautiful names. One means fragrant. One means pleasant. I mean, these are nice names. Except there's a problem. What is the problem? They're not living in harmony. So Paul is telling the Philippians, you help them. You help these women. Because disunity, division, is one of the worst sins that can be found in any family, in any church, in any community. Therefore, notice his approach. Live a Christ-centered life. What is he saying? If there is any encouragement, grammatically, what Paul is saying, since you have been encouraged through Christ, because you have experienced the love of Christ, because you have experienced the fellowship of the Spirit, you see, grammatically, this word if, it's a first-class conditional clause. It is a certainty, except it's like a rhetorical question. Since you have encouragement from Christ, since you have the love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, since you have compassion, make my joy complete. Paul is not saying he's unhappy. Paul understood joy comes from the Lord. However, I have discovered something. Joy has no limit. When I married my wife 46 years ago, I was full of joy. But 46 years 46 years later, I'm even more joyful. When I met Jesus over 50 years ago, I was joyful. But as I walk with the Lord, as I learn more about the Lord, I'm even more joyful today. In other words, joy can keep on, you can keep growing, having more joy. That's what Paul is saying. You guys make my joy even fuller by being of the same mind, the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Notice what Paul is saying. He's not after uniformity. He's after unity. There's a big difference. He's not after conformity. He's after the oneness that we can have in Christ. And notice this oneness. It has to do with same love, united in the spirit, intent on one purpose. Therefore, he gives them the solution. What's the solution? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. These verses changed my life. I praise God as we began to memorize this the Lord kept reminding me, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Notice, he is now telling us to go deeper. When there is conflict, when there is disunity, do you know why? Superficially, conflict may seem like, well, we have different opinions. But you go deeper. As you go deeper, you'll discover unresolved conflict it's because of selfishness. It's because of pride. Let me give you an example. My wife and I are different. 
with different background, different culture, even the, the color of our skin is completely different. So we will surely have conflict from time to time, but I praise God because of the reality of Jesus. We have learned not to be self-centered. Conflict is a blessing if you learn how to resolve it. Now, how do we resolve conflict? For many people, they are not taught properly. You can avoid discussion. You can pretend it doesn't exist, which is most what, of what we do in Asia. We sweep it under the rug. Or you can attack each other. You can gossip. So on one extreme, you deny, you pretend it does not exist. On the other extreme, the danger is you attack each other. What is the right approach? Paul is saying, be humble. Approach it through the way of Jesus. Humility, not selfishness. Selfishness will want to say, I want to prove you are wrong. And I want to prove I am right. That's why conflict is seldom resolved when you have your own selfish agenda. I praise God for the CCF elders and pastors. If you attend our meetings, you will discover something. We can disagree. But because we have learned the importance of being together when it comes to the purpose of why we exist, to honor Christ, to make Christ committed followers, we can discuss things. Because the elders and the pastors do not have personal agenda. If you have personal agenda, it's hard to resolve conflict. And that's why the Bible is very clear. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. The word conceit, but vain. You are proud, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. You know, many times... I have my default move when it comes to being a husband, being a father. The Asian culture is, my part is to provide. My part is to make money to provide for the family. That's the mindset of most Asians. And they expect their wives to do the serving. But when I began to analyze God's way, I realized, you know what? I should not be selfish. I need to learn to practice humility. By nature, I am self-centered. I am selfish. A few years ago, our family was having a reunion. And one of my daughters, I won't mention her name, she said, Dad, I think you are selfish. She said this in front of everybody. Guess how I felt? Of course I felt bad. But instead of reacting, I asked myself, why will my daughter say this? Now, if you want to know what's the context, the context has to do with her desire for my wife, Diana, and I to take care of our grandchildren. The context is she heard Somebody suggesting that why don't we bring the small kids to Costco? That will be easier for everybody. 
But her interpretation, that idea was mine. I instigated the Costco plan. But the truth is, in my mind, perhaps it's from me, but in my mind, we don't mind taking care of the grandkids. Let me tell you why. Because my wife is the one who will take care of the grandkids. She's an expert. So I don't have a problem with that. But in her mind, I was being selfish. My pride would have compelled me to argue with her, to defend myself, but the Lord reminded me, be humble. So I had time to process it myself. And I went before God, and I said, Lord, I admit I am selfish. I admit that many times I don't like to be inconvenienced. And I discovered something. When you learn to be humble, joy is restored. So I'm happy to tell you that incident did not allow my relationship with my daughter to have a break. In fact, we love each other even more. But that account reminded me how easy it is for us to be self-centered and not to think of others. This is amazing. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is almost impossible. Because by nature, I think of myself. So, what's the solution? Well, this is amazing. Before I tell you the solution, I will now show you the reality of conflict, not always because of differences that could easily be resolved when you discuss things. It's because of selfishness, and the root problem is pride. Therefore, how do you resolve this problem? How can you learn to be humble? Well, the antidote for pride is very simple. Live a Christ-centered life. Be humble like Christ. The solution is Christ. Can you turn to your neighbor? Tell your neighbor. The solution is live a Christ-centered life. Because it is humanly impossible to get rid of pride. Impossible. You need Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul made it very clear. I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, this is amazing. What Paul is saying, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul is saying, I've died to my old life. You see, the cure for pride is to have a new life. You've got to have a new heart. And only God can do that. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Remember what we have been discussing? The Christian life is not hard. It is impossible. We need the Spirit of God. We need the life of Christ in us. That's what Paul is saying. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is what theologians call saving faith. What is saving faith? By faith, you trust in Jesus. By faith, you believe 
He loves you. By faith, you believe He died for you. So, what is the solution? Look at what Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 tells us. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of man. Notice Paul was asking the Philippians, you need to focus on Jesus. What can we learn about Jesus? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was the attitude of Christ? What was the mindset of Christ? Notice, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. By the way, these verses are one of the most theological truths you can learn about Jesus. The Bible tells us, who existed in the form of God. Now, the English word used here is form. But I want you to know something. In the Greek language, you have more specific word to describe form. One is morphe. Morphe means the essence, the reality of the object. And you have the word schema, scheme, the shape. The Apostle Paul is not using the word schema. He's using the word form, the very essence of God. Let me give you an example. I'm a human being. My morphe is humanity. I'm a human being. But my schema will change. A baby, a young boy, a teenager, an adult. But my form, my morphe, my basic essence is humanity. It's like flower. You can have ilang-ilang, you can have sampagita, you can have rose, but it's a flower. The schema can be different. So Paul is saying, Jesus Christ existed in the form of God. He was God. His very nature was God. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Sometimes it is translated as to rub, to grab. Jesus was God, but he was willing to surrender the rights to exercise divinity. What does it mean? Notice, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant. The word empty himself does not mean Jesus stopped becoming God, but he stopped using his privileges as God. How else can you explain he died? God can never die. How else can you explain his power, his ability? How else can you explain that he was willing to be tortured, to go through pain, to suffer? Jesus became 100% man. This is what theologians like to describe the hypostatic union. What does it mean? Jesus, 100% God, took the form of a man. He became man, 100%. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. And then the Bible tells us, 
being made in the likeness of men. Now, grammatically, that is now the transitory, meaning Jesus was 100% man. But eventually, as I show you the verse, let me explain. How is this taught in the Bible? Let's read this together, everybody. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This is so crucial. Many times we don't have a proper view of who Jesus is. That's why our lives are not transformed. You need to have a proper biblical view of Jesus. Let me explain. In the beginning, grammatically, before there was time, you have the Word. Notice definite article, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Who is this Word? All things came into being by Him. He created all things. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, the best way to interpret the Bible is to allow the Bible to explain itself. So in the same chapter, you go to chapter, you go to chapter 1, same chapter, go to verse 14. Who is the Word? Everybody read together. Wherever you are, in your room, in your small group, together. And the Word became flesh. Notice, the Word became flesh. He took the form of a man. And dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So who is the Word? Who became flesh? Jesus. Therefore, now, read that same verses using the word Jesus. Together. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Jesus. Apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. A proper view of who Jesus is will transform your heart and your life. Notice, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Bible is very emphatic and very clear. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. <clears throat> exact representation. Not copy. Exact representation. The firstborn of all creation. Everybody read? For by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Jesus and for Jesus. And that, my friend, is the most amazing thing about Jesus. You must understand who Jesus is. For you to appreciate the next verse. Being found in appearance as a man. Now, this word is changed now. Schema. Huh. 
Previously, morphe, man. And now, schema. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Because Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. But how he looks is not permanent. But he was a man. The Bible tells us you will now understand the humility of Christ. He was God. He became a man. You will notice. Not only becoming a man, he became a servant. Humility of Jesus. You have no idea the difference between God and man. That gap is infinite. And yet he was willing to become a man. Not just willing to become a man. He was willing to become a servant. The Bible tells us Jesus came to seek and to serve the lost. He came to serve. I don't know of any other king in the whole world, historically speaking, who has this idea. I'm a servant. I'm here to serve you. They mouth it. They talk about it. Politicians talk about this. We're your servant. But they don't act like servant. But praise God, Jesus became a servant. Why? Because of our need. The Bible tells us, notice, not just servant, the Bible tells us, not only did he become a servant, he died. Now, it's one thing to die, but notice the kind of death he chose. The Bible tells us, Jesus died on the cross. The most horrible kind of death. The most shameful kind of death. You have no idea how shameful and how painful the cross is. His story tells us people who die on the cross are stripped naked. No clothes. That's humiliating. But more than that, the pain, the agony. When I think of Jesus, who he is, God, infinite power, the glory of Jesus, and how he became a man, how he suffered, how he died, I cannot help it but be owed, be humbled that Jesus would die for me and for you. That is the mindset of Jesus. Surrendered his rights. God. But he was willing to surrender his rights. Not just surrender. He's willing to serve. If Jesus can do that, what about us? You know what the Bible tells us? What did God do? God exalted Jesus to become King of kings and Lord of lords. The Bible says, at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Notice, the humility of Jesus is exemplified by surrendering his rights. My question 
to you is, what rights are you willing to surrender? For example, many of us have rights. We don't like to surrender. The right to be respected. We expect people to respect us. Jesus was willing to surrender that right. The right to be treated fairly. Jesus was not treated fairly. Many, many Christians get angry because they say it's unfair. Well, the antidote for pride is humility. Are you willing to surrender your right to be heard? Your right to be right. Now, I don't know what you are going through right now. Perhaps you are angry. Well, look at the humility of Jesus, surrendering your rights. Look at the humility of Jesus. If there's a job, listen to me, practice humility. If there is a job that no one wants to do, everybody, read it together, say, I will do the job. If there's a menial task that no one wants to do, I'll volunteer for that task. If there's a piece of toast bread that's burned, I'll take that piece. Notice, this is counterintuitive. I'm not able to do this. But by the grace of God, I'm learning. If there's a parking space that's far away from the church, I'll park in that space. Oh my goodness. That's humility. You surrender your rights. Now may I suggest the following suggestions. To humble ourselves, volunteer, serve, because there's a need. Even menial tasks. You know, I praise God for many of our elders. Many of our elders are business people. But I heard how they schedule their time. I know of one elder who would schedule his time in order to meet younger believers. Now, that elder is a very successful businessman. But he was willing. I remember a leader was willing to manage the traffic, to answer, to help people. Suggestion, welcome correction. If people correct you, thank them. Ask others how you can improve. Don't be afraid. That's humility. Listen to others instead of talking about yourselves. You know, many times we like to talk about ourselves. Learn to listen. Be grateful. Humility is always thankful. You, you have a grateful heart. You know it's from God. So be grateful. Be generous. Be thankful. That's humility. So you want to practice humility? Focus on Jesus, and this is what will happen to your life. It's a lifetime process. It's good to learn. Now, if you want to summarize everything, remember my favorite song? Jesus... Others and you. Joy. You want me to sing for you? Jesus and others and you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus and others and you. That's enough. What a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus first. <coughs> others. You last. Can I tell you something? The most miserable people I know are people who is always thinking about themselves. The famous psychiatrist, <coughs> Dr. Carl Manninger. I shared this a few weeks ago. 
I don't know if you remember. He is very famous. Harvard graduate. Harvard professor. He put up a training class for psychiatrists, a training school, which is the biggest at that time. He was asked a question. What do you do when people are depressed? When they're about to destroy themselves, what do you do? You know what he tells them to do? Lock your house. Go out. Go to the poorest section of your place and help others. My friend, when you help others, this is what's going to happen to us. Everybody read. For this reason, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is a universal principle. It's counterintuitive. When you humble yourselves, God will exalt you. The Bible tells us, for this reason, God highly exalted him. You may, you may ask me, but he was already God. He was with God in the beginning. Correct. Except you need to understand, Jesus became man, 100% man. This Jesus became 100% man. The man Jesus is now forever God and man together. Eternity passed. He was God. 2,000 years ago, he became man. The God-man Jesus. The Bible tells us God bestowed on him. The man, Jesus, God and man. The name which is above every name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Can I share with you the word Lord? Curious. That is the word used to describe owners of slaves. Later on, it was used to describe the emperor of Rome. Curious. And then, the New Testament used the word curious based on the translation of the Hebrew Bible to the Greek language, the Septuagint, where Jehovah, Yahweh, is now literally translated as curious. What the Bible is saying is this. This same Jesus is now Lord, curious, the name given to Yahweh, the very name of God. I use this truth every time we're involved with casting out demons. I will tell the person possessed. I will say, in the name of Jesus, you have to live. Why? Because I'll recite this verse. I'll tell the demons. Every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth, every knee will bow. At the name of Jesus, every knee, no exception, will bow. Those who are in heaven, angelic forces, and on earth, 
human being under the earth, whatever they may be, demons, whatever it is, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is Jesus. And that's why Paul is saying, you cannot humble yourself until you learn to focus on Jesus, who he is, and how he humbled himself. No wonder the Bible tells us why we need to learn to be humble. Everybody, let's read this together. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Everybody read. God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. This is a promise. You humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. Friends, to be humble is to trust God. You are telling God, Lord, my interest is being affected, but only you can protect my interest. You see, to be humble for us believers is an amazing privilege because you are entrusting your future, your protection to the Lord. That's why the Bible tells us, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of God. I want you to focus on this word. For the joy set before him endured the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he was not just thinking of that moment. He was thinking of eternity in the future. There's tremendous joy. What is that joy set before Jesus that he was willing to endure the suffering of the cross? What is that? Can I submit to you? The joy of seeing you, seeing me, to having eternal life. The joy of having our sins forgiven. Jesus loves you. The joy of seeing the smile of God the Father. Because it is the will of God the Father to send Jesus to die on the cross. That joy that was before Jesus is amazing. Because he loves you, he loves me. And that's what it means when you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Only Jesus can transform your heart. But what does it mean to fix your eyes on him? Look for the joy set before him. You must always, by faith, look at what Jesus promised. Look at what God has promised us. The joy that awaits us. Endure the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, to solve the problem of pride is impossible. You need Jesus. That's why I want to close with this amazing truth. To cure the virus of pride, to maintain the joy we have with one another, to maintain not just joy, to increase the joy, you've got to deal with pride. And pride will not go away until there is a dying of self, a complete transformation of the heart, a change of heart. I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live but Christ. My question is, has this happened to you? 
Do you have that relationship with Jesus? Can you honestly say, it's no longer I, but Christ? Notice, but Christ lives in me. Is Christ in you? Without Christ, it is impossible to experience the joy and the humility that brings joy. By faith, how by which I now live in the, faith, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That, my friend, is something you need to experience. You need to have a real encounter with Jesus. That encounter has to be so real that you come to Jesus and say, Lord, you changed my heart. Some of us don't know who Jesus is. We have wrong theology. I want to share with you the greatest being, God, loves you. He humbled himself. If God humbled himself to die for you, to die for me, that we may have life, are you willing to follow him? As we finish, I will, let, I will say a prayer and we'll, we will have a last song. After the last song, I want to flash discussion questions. You can discuss with your family after the music. I want our worship service to be so meaningful, house to house. And then we will discuss the message. In the meantime, will you bow your heads and pray? If you can honestly admit that you are a proud person. If you can honestly admit that you don't have the joy because you don't have Jesus. Okay, if you can honestly admit that, Lord, I have not experienced your life in me, will you pray this prayer with me? Admitting how self-sufficient, how proud you are by not turning to the Lord. Pray this prayer of humility. Lord Jesus, I need you. I've been a proud person. I would like to always fight for my rights. I would always like to defend myself. Today I realize that I should learn from you. Not only copy you, but to allow you to live your life in and through me. Lord Jesus, I accept your gift of forgiveness. I accept your gift of eternal life. Thank you for dying on the cross so that we may have forgiveness, we may have life. I now invite you to be the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen and amen. Praise God. We hope to see you again next week. Let's sing the last song and process the question after the song.